Your actions don't demonstrate that consciousness. And it's not that we lose the knowledge of the first step. I've had times where I could go give a lecture on the body, mind, and spirit, the three-part problem in the first step, but the consciousness of the first step is not there. You know those times when you don't want to make amends and they're just coming into your life and you're making them and you don't want to? You know those times when you don't want to write inventory and it's just coming out of you and you're writing and you don't want to write? That's when the consciousness of the preceding steps is moving you through the one you're in. But that consciousness can be lost. I believe if we really look at step one, we will see, we will see a deeper experience with step one in step two. It's not like step one ends when you move into step two. I think the truth about step one and the consciousness that it produces and the power behind that consciousness should get deeper in each step. For example, you've looked at one, two, and three. You're in inventory. You're seeing your first step in black and white. In amends, you're sitting across from somebody in their living room. You're seeing your, you're seeing your first step in color right in front of you. I believe if it is like an onion, you can go deeper into the first step as you move through one through nine. So this lady says, whether going forward through the steps or whether going backwards through the steps, what happens to people is they get stuck on the dash. The dash turns upside down into a wall and all of a sudden amends are about the unmanageability of your life. Things have straightened out. Why go on? Because it's not about what's on the other side of that dash, which is, do I still believe I'm powerless over alcohol? So here's a prayer. Anybody, anybody stuck in amends? I got a great prayer for you. If you don't want to hear it, cover your ears because it will mess up your consciousness. And here's the prayer. Dear God, please show me if these unfinished amends have anything to do with whether I drink again or not. Amen. Because I'll tell you what, 99.9% .9 of the people I've met that have gone out, Mark was talking about relapse last night, go out behind unfinished amends. You could use that same prayer around resentments. Dear God, show me if this resentment has anything to do with whether I'll drink again or not. You could do that with your daily practice of 10 and 11. Uh, I want to talk about steps two and three. Uh, if you want to open your big book up to uh, chapter four, We Agnostics. Regardless of length of sobriety, we all have some agnosticism within us. A test of that is, is simple. Take the last week and ask yourself, in what areas of your life are you experiencing fear? If you have some areas of your life that you've experienced fear, my experience is, is because that's an area of your life in which you're still relying on self, and the reason you're still relying on self is because you don't trust God with that area of your life. Length of time away from a drink has not in and of itself removed at times from me various levels of agnosticism. My first step experience in, in and seeing what that means brings me to chapter 4, We Agnostics, in the second step, page 44. The book is interesting. They, they will talk to you and I, ask us to look at our experience to diagnose what's wrong with this, because after all, no one can tell us anything. So we have to come up with our own experience. And then they'll repeat, and in one sentence they repeat what they spent 53 pages on. If, when I honestly want to, I found that I could not quit entirely. So I say, is that you? Did you honestly want to quit entirely? Yes. Did, could you pull that off? No, I could not. 
<coughs> or if when drinking I have little control over the amount I take, is that me? Yes. Then I'm probably an alcoholic. Now I have my truth. This is me. One sentence sums up the first 53 pages. And if this is the case, if this is my experience, I may be suffering from an illness which only, circle that word, O-N-L-Y, a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, I've worked with people that said, well, Mark, what does only mean? <laughs> See, the, the first step will take you down a funnel, and at the end of the funnel, there's one option, a spiritual experience. Do you believe that? My first step took away my right to debate with you about God and God's power in my life. My first step is what got me open-minded. My first step is what keeps me open-minded today. My willingness to lay aside prejudice. It's all connected to my first step and my need for power. There's a bunch of you here I know from halfway houses, treatment centers. I don't know about the rest of you, but there comes a point in time in your life where I hope you get sick with winding up in places like that, and you're in places like that because you're trying to live your life on your power. <clears throat> How's it working? I hope you get sick of that at some point in time. I hope you wake up to your need for power and give up your right to no longer be willing to embrace this God idea and the power of God in your life. And I've had to do that in every single area of my life, from my finances to my physical health to my relationships. All my life situation stuff ties me into this lack of power is my dilemma. Page 45 talks about my resources as marshaled by my will were not sufficient to fail utterly. Lack of power is my dilemma, is it? I had to find a power by which I could live, and it has to be a power greater than myself. Obvious. Is this obvious? See, every area of my life over the years in which I've been sober, in which pain and suffering took me to a place where I wanted it to change, every single time what I saw in my first step is lack of power was my, was my problem, my dilemma. Not knowledge. Not knowledge. In every single area of my life, ultimately, that brought pain and suffering. Lack of power is my dilemma. I'm like a lot of you. I have far more knowledge than I need. What I lack was the power to turn that knowledge into a reality in my life. Give you, I'll give you a simple example. And it is tied into drinking, by the way. It's smoking. My consciousness about a year and a half ago said, we no longer wish to participate in this. That was not exciting news at that time. <laughs> so I began a journey. Now, I'm a real alcoholic, and, and everything I do, I'll take the easier, softer way. So I went to a treatment center, the best in the country that works with that, and I spent a week there. I got a ton of information, more information than I wished I'd ever gotten. They messed that up for me forever. And, I, and what I'll report to you is over the last 14 months, I've had about five months in which I was smoke-free. It was incredible. I'm smoking again. Is lack of knowledge my problem? No. Lack of power is my problem. See, what person in their sane mind would do this thing? See, I'm insane in that area of my life. And trust me, I, I have tried it all. So I'm reworking the steps right now, and that's an area. Now, is there a connection between this life situation and a drink? Yes. Why? Well, you can play that out in your mind how that could look, where that could take you. 
what could happen. Some forms of illnesses that could manifest in your mind one day says, oh, hell, you're going to die anyhow. A little drinky poo wouldn't hurt. See, any life situation I have ultimately is about me taking a drink. So this is just one area of many in which I've come face to face with lack of power is my dilemma, not knowledge. Now, here's another part in this. I have a say in this thing about do I want to recreate my life. And no one can do that and no one can force me and no one can make me. So those are things that have all come to me over the years, every area of my life, from my finances to this. Is lack of power my dilemma? Yes. The book says, well, that's exactly this book about. Its main object is enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. I forget this all the time. I think I have to do something to solve my problem. That is not how it works. I, go, I pursue a course of action as outlined in the steps and a power shows up and solves my problem. Because see, the part of me that creates the problem is not what I'm going to go to to eliminate the problem. So I take a course of action to experience a power which solves the problem. That makes my part in this somewhat simplistic. See, I'm not going to be the one who solves the problem. I'm the one who creates it. I pursue a course of action. This power shows up and the power solves my problem. I want to touch on some, uh, some other highlights on, uh, if you turn to page 47. When I go back to the second step for me, there's two parts to this and a bunch of great promises. The first part to this is, is in the middle of page 47 where we're going to ask ourselves a short question. Do I now believe or am willing to believe there's a power greater than myself? I work with this every single time when I go back through the steps. It's a question, a consideration that I have to sit with. Do I now believe or am willing to believe there's a power greater than myself? In any area of my life, around my alcoholism, around any area of my life in which I need power, is there a power greater than myself that I can have an experience with? Is lack of power in some area of my life, is it a dilemma? If you'll turn over to page 50, the bottom paragraph, one of my favorite paragraphs in the whole book, talks about here's thousands of men and women, worldly indeed. These men and women flatly declare since they've come to believe in a power greater than themselves to take a certain attitude toward that power and to do certain simple things, there's been a revolutionary change in the way of living and thinking. Look at the implications of that sentence. That's an amazing promise. If I'm willing to do some things, there will be a revolutionary change in the way I live and think. In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of my human resources, I can find a new, a new N-E-W. For those of you who've been around for a while, every time through the steps, N-E-W, new. <clears throat> new levels of power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction will flow into me. This will happen to me soon after I wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements. Joe talked about that last night. There's some requirements as we go through this process. The requirements that the steps are going to ask me to do are like kissing the baby's butt compared to what whiskey asked me to do. You lose that first step connection, the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth can seem overwhelming. Stay connected and they will not seem overwhelming. Think of what alcohol and or drugs ask of you. Think of what it has taken from you. Stay hooked to that as you move through these steps. I mean, think about this. 
Okay, I, do I now believe there's a power greater than myself? I'm unwilling to choose that power is everything. Well, let's see, if I don't, I drink again and all that. Let me, yeah, I think I will. <laughs> Third step, you're going to make a decision to turn your will and life over to the power. Well, let's see, I can do that or, or drink. You see, oh, yeah. I can write these three inventories, drink. Oh, I can read a fifth step, drink. Identify my defects, take them to God in the seventh, drink. Make a list of all the people, all the money. Go make amends to all these people or drink. Gee, what's harder? You follow me? See? You, if you, that's why the steps are circular. When Joe talks about every successive step should take you further into the first step. You need that connection in order to do it. it it's no different when you get to the disciplines of 10 and 11. Do the disciplines of 10 and 11, die an alcoholic death. Let me think. See, and then 12-step work, which those of you who do it know, on the one hand, it's a glorious, incredible thing, and on the other, it is just pathetic. <laughs> Whining and yee, 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 yee. Especially when you still think you can help another alcoholic. Yeah. So it goes on to say, once confused and baffled, sober, by the seeming futility of existence, they show the underlying reasons why we make heavy going a life. Life is not heavy going. We make heavy going of life based on our perception, our self-will, and our lack of power, our unwillingness to accept what is. We make heavy going of life. Then the book does something very interesting. Leaving aside the drink question, they tell why living is so unsatisfactory. Living was never going to get satisfactory to me until I had a revolutionary change in the way I think, the way I begin to perceive life. And then they describe what has to happen. The consciousness of the presence of God. Joe talked about that. I've done the work also with some people who've been sober a long time. They had the same experience he described. It's profound. There's a huge difference between living in the grace of God and conscious contact with that which provides the grace. And I mean a huge difference. It's like once going from one side of the planet to the other. If you'll turn over to page 53... Middle paragraph, second part of the second step. When I became an alcoholic, based on my experience, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, self-imposed, by the way, I could not postpone or evade. I have to fearlessly face the proposition, God is everything or God is nothing. God either is or God isn't. What is my choice to be? And it is a choice. And by the way, it's the last choice you'll have to make as you move through the steps. You're going to have to make a decision and take some action. This is the last choice that you have to make. God is everything or God is nothing. What are you going to stand on? First step, die an alcoholic death, unmanageable life sober. Or make God everything. Gee, what, what should I do? See? But you lose that first step and this second step can seem overwhelming to you. I tell people take a chill pill on the God issue... We agnostic says, quit trying to define or comprehend God. Because ultimately, if you're like me, you're going to experience God with an organ that is different than your mind. To experience God, you must be out of your mind. Joe made a statement yesterday, which I have found to be very true. My mind and my belief systems about God can be one of my biggest barriers to experiencing conscious contact with God. Any idea about God isn't God. 
Another question for those that have been around for a while. Are you more interested in consciousness or conception? Page 55. You know, I think I'll let Joe talk for a little bit about the second. We want to get into the third step. If this thing is about power and I need power based on my first step experience, then where and how to find that power becomes very important. So on page 55, the book says, I'm fooling myself for deep down inside every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God. This idea may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other it, this idea of God is there. For faith in this power greater than ourselves and demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. I finally saw faith in some kind of God was a part of my makeup. That means you don't have to do anything to bring it about. Just as much as the feeling I have for a friend. Now the next sentence tells you how you're going to experience this power. You have to search fearlessly. But it says the power is there. The power is as much a fact as we were. We're going to find the great reality deep down within ourselves. That's where you're going to find God. How we're going to experience God's power is to take the rest of the steps. Where we're going to experience God's power is deep down within us. And in the final analysis, it's only there that God can be found. And that has been my experience. Steps four through nine are about facing and being rid of that which has you blocked from experiencing that which is closer to you than breathing. Now, that's a paradox. I mean, people say to me, well, Mark, i got to find God. Excuse me? What do you mean you have to find God? Where isn't God? See, if there's nothing but God, there can be no God. All is God. All that these steps ever did for me was make me awake, aware, mindful, conscious of that which is always present to me. If I'm not feeling separate from that, identified with my mind, the main problem centers in the mind. I don't, I don't go looking for God. I didn't come here seeking God. I was given a precise, specific, clear-cut set of instructions. I took those and I came to experience this power. And I didn't have to go anywhere. Joe's got a funny story about that. He'll have to tell you because he, he went down to India. <laughs> I, I made a quote. Up, up to India. Up to India, yeah. But so I'll let him talk I'm, about steps two and three. I'm laying there in bed one night and it's cold in India this night. And there's no power this night. And I'm in bed and I'm freezing to death and I have my little Walkman that runs on batteries. And I pull out a tape of Mark's from about four years before I even thought of going to India. And I'm laying there and I'm freezing and it's, it's not easy this night. We've all had those dark nights wherever you might live with the heat on. And uh, uh, in the middle of this tape, Mark goes, you know, you don't have to go to India and study with the Dalai Lama to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And then I remember my grand sponsor, Gary Brown, calling me one time before I went, uh, but I knew I was going. And he said, you know, you've got to be really careful with him. And he said, you know, you've got to be really careful with intuition. You can be off by one or two letters. How do you know your intuition is not saying, go to Indiana, right? <laughs> like in that movie, you ever saw that movie, Always, where there's like this prophet, and the prophet keeps telling him, 
don't go. But all he hears is, go, go, <laughs> right? I believe this big book contains the long form of the 12 traditions, the short form of the 12 traditions, the long form of the 12 steps, and the short form of the 12 steps. We've already seen in the first step there is a lot more than just admitting that you're powerless over alcohol and that your life is unmanageable. That's the short form. I love when somebody takes that spiritual principle and makes it into one word. Where do they get these one words? First step, hope. Second step, I mean, whatever, and they make up their own. I know one that's left out, I think, is in every single step. The spiritual principle of admission. To let in. To let truth in. To let it be. To let the truth be the truth. So if there's more to step one in the long form, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic, bodily, mentally, spiritually. This is the first step in recovery. Another two important lines that I think sum up the experience that you should be feeling by the end of step one, I believe are at the bottom of 42. Second paragraph. Here's the bottom line to the first step. Last line of the second paragraph. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. And the last line on that page, quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. And then, of course, the summary on the bottom of 43. The scary thing about at a certain time, you have to ask yourself, do you know what that certain time would look like, feel like, or be like? And if you're truthful with yourself and you're anything like me, that certain time came when you were feeling good, feeling bad, those horrible times when you're just not feeling much at all, things going good, things going bad. So try, pray, pray that your first step is not grounded in circumstance or emotional state. You've got to ask yourself, maybe you're just an emotional drinker. But now your ways down the road. Your emotions have straightened out. Maybe now you could get away with a few drinks. If you were just an emotional drinker who drank when they only felt bad. If it's a severe emotional problem, work on your emotions, getting them straightened out, find a way to cope with them and deal with them and work on them. And then maybe now you're like a normal person. Or maybe you're a circumstantial drinker. Things go bad, you drink. Or maybe you're a real alcoholic and emotional state doesn't matter as far as the craving and the obsession and circumstance doesn't matter either. <clears throat> I think sometimes I love when I'm sitting in a meeting and I hear medical doctors, psychiatrists, and religious people condemned in our program, failing to remember this. The first step came from a, a doctor and a psychiatrist. We got the craving from a non-alcoholic doctor, Silkworth. We got the mental obsession from the father of modern day psychology, Carl Jung, the mental obsession. The spiritual malady, we learned a lot from a, a non-alcoholic doctor, Harry Thibault. And 2 through 11 basically came from a fundamental religious organization called the Oxford Group. So be careful when you put down. It's, it's interesting that our entire program comes from non-alcoholics, but it happens between one alcoholic sitting with another, and you really need that connection. Addicts working with alcoholics and alcoholics working with addicts, you know, if you have a choice, find somebody with the same first step. Uh, I mentioned going deeper into the first step as you move into step nine. I also believe your second step gets deeper. Your third step will get deeper. Or 
you'll get further away from those three considerations. Um, the first half of step two, this is what we do with someone. You would think, having seen what you've seen in step one, that it's now time to go home and see how much faith you have. I found something really interesting with our big book. It says, and this can be with somebody with time too, you've come through the first step, you're looking at step two, the first proposition is, do you now believe or are you even willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? A lot of newcomers think they take the second step, they're supposed to wake up the next day with absolute faith. It doesn't say, came to believe, uh, do you now believe or are you even willing to believe in a power greater than yourself, just that there is. Right? You go home and you say to yourself, well, I believe this much, and now I should increase my faith and go home and see how much faith I really have. I found the big book says, well, isn't about this much of it really faith in other things, people, sentiment, money, and yourself, your own mind, and it gets smaller. Isn't about this much of it about money, Santa Claus God, worship of things, sunset, even the sunset, the sea, or a flower can distract you from looking within. Even when your motives are good, it can be a block to God. So I think the first half of step two is to see that you have about this much faith. And what we do is we have people go through the entire chapter with this proposition in mind. Do you now believe, one short question, do you now believe or are you even willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? Go through the whole chapter, mark any word, any statement that helps you face where you don't believe. You face your agnosticism in step two. A lot of people think step two is about insanity. The insanity is in step one. Now you're asking, do I believe I can be restored to a place? In my, in my, in my case, I don't want to be restored. I want a new mind that's sane. I don't want to be restored to the mind I was born with. That got me in trouble for the next 50 years, right? I want a new mind. Am I willing to believe God can do that so I need to see where I have doubt? And mark those word or statements that stand out to you. Honest doubt, prejudice, worship of things, people, sentiment, money, yourself, believe in your mind. If it's not in your mind, it isn't. There's nothing beyond what you think. Because they're going to take you to a place where you're going to start to rely on something other than logic and reason. It's a promise in our program. I'd like to also talk about, I met a man in Denver when we got sober who was in the Red Brigade of the Oxford Movement and then came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I think when Alcoholics Anonymous was two or three years old. He told me that this book was written by drunks for drunks and that here and there, once in a while, they're going to put a word if you're looking for a way out. They call them traps, probably, maybe, rarely. And I think in that first paragraph in We Agnostic, they give you a couple words that would help you if you're looking for a way out of this deal. If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount that you take, you're probably alcoholic. Now, probably is a good enough word if you're looking for a way out, but I believe another word is or. <laughs> Because I've had people that are not clear on the craving, or let's say they're not clear on the obsession, but they're clear on one or the other, and they get to that line and they say, see, the big book says you don't have to have both. Because, see, the first line is describing the obsession. I can't stay stopped. The second line is describing the craving. you got to have both to be powerless. Here's the deal. Let's say every time you drink you get the craving. 
overwhelming craving to have to drink more every time you drink, but you don't get the mental obsession. You know what the message is for you? Just don't drink, no matter what, and you'll never get that craving again. Make up your mind and don't ever drink, just like if you're allergic to strawberries, quit eating strawberries. And if you don't have that, you won't, you'll be able to do that. Or let's say the other way around. You don't get the craving, but you get the mental obsession. Hey, next time you get the obsession, just drink the way you want to drink. You got to have both to be powerless. I'm powerless when it's not in my body. I'm powerless when it's in my body. Both of those make up the first half of step one. My life is not unmanageable because of the mental obsession. I'm powerless over alcohol because of a physical craving and a mental obsession. So we get to this first question. Do I now believe, if you're new, it's great. And I bet those that have been around for a while would never think, gee, maybe after 20 years, all I have to do is be willing to believe that this power can take me past where I am. See, because if you've been around for a while, this first question is not going to be relevant. 15, 20 years sober, do you now believe, or are you even willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? Of course you do. So some people in Denver told me there's something you can add to that question that will make it as relevant no matter how many times you've done the work. And the question is this, do you now believe or are you even willing to believe that this power that you say you've had faith and experience with can take you past here, all that you've seen in step one, to levels of freedom and peace you can't even imagine? But you've got to clearly see the first step. If you've been around, start by looking at the current manifestations of page 52. <clears throat> And whether you're new or old or in between, here's a proposition for you. Is it possible when you're sitting in a meeting talking about the unmanageability of your life, you're really talking about a drink and there is no disconnection, the dash is not real, the dash is an illusion, and the, the unmanageability of your life is a drink of alcohol and that there's no separation between whining about the relationship because your ego has a drink underneath that problem or how you're feeling, there's a drink underneath that problem. Here's the proposition. Is there any separation now, I don't care how long you're sober, between the current unmanageability and a drink of alcohol and see what separates you from that unmanageability that's currently going on and why you're not drunk. And you'll see it's nothing more or less than the grace of God. Now, how do you get from being willing to believe in, that there is a power greater than yourself to choosing this power to be everything or nothing? You go through the chapter again and you'll find words and statements. Mark them in another color that take you from your simple willingness to believe to choosing everything or nothing. You'll find them. There's statements like, as soon as a man can say he's willing, he's well on the way. Upon this simple, all kinds of statements like that that take you from bridge to shore, that last mile. And I'll, I'll throw this out just for some discussion maybe later. I believe if you want to live, if you've answered that fundamental question at the beginning, do you want to live? If you think there's a choice at step two, it's based in a first step reservation. Because if you want to live, live, I believe when you get to what you think is a choice, there is none. And if you think there's a choice at step two, it's based in a first step reservation. Um, this work was as relevant to me this time, 21 years sober, as it was the first time. I'm more awake. I started by looking at the unmanageability. I saw there is no separation between that and a drink, and the only thing that keeps that from happening is grace. I was asked to look at fear. Is there any fear? Because you know a place that a lot of us have missed? We had to fearlessly face the proposition 
I think fearlessly means without fear. A friend of mine told me his sponsor told him fearlessly means with fear, but you do it anyway. No. Fearlessly means fearlessly. And here's what I'll throw out for you. If when you get to this proposition, God is everything or nothing, that the book says we have to face fearlessly, if there's any fear about drinking again, it's a first step of reservation that you can do something about not drinking again. Because I believe fear is always rooted in an idea of self-reliance. Doesn't the book say that? Fear is because self-reliance fails. If you're in fear, there's a lurking notion that you can do something. We used to say things like, you can't go to the second step in a good mood. Why not? Maybe the first time. And if you're being motivated by the fear of drinking again, great. If it gets you through amends. But there will come a time, for those of you that have been around for a while, that to fearlessly face this means to fearlessly face this without fear. Look through the fear. See the lurking notion rooted in self-reliance. The fear goes away, and I was able, I was given the grace to fearlessly face this proposition with no fear of drinking again, because I don't think there's anything I can do about drinking again. The experience of the experience is more important than any explanation. I take the course of action, the experience happens to me and through me. And I don't label it, and I don't prejudge it, and I don't presuppose to know what it's going to look like. Page 60, I want to talk uh, about the third step. Come up to the ABCs. Is this my truth? I'm an alcoholic and cannot manage my own life, and I have an experience with that. Probably no human power could relieve my alcoholism. Is that my truth? We all over the years have had many uh, humans influence us in recovery from alcoholism. They are like the big book or the steps. They're pointing us to this power. That's all that they can do. See, God could and would if he were sought. Being convinced of that, I'm in step three and I'm going to make a decision. Turn my will and life over to God as I understood God. I don't understand God. Because the organ I would have to use to talk to you about that is my mind. God is so far beyond that. So the God of my understanding today is I don't understand God. I quit trying to turn my hair white. I'm only 29. (laughs) Some of us have attempted to intellectually come to know God. You will go insane. Ten years, they locked me up in a nut house. I'm going to figure out the God thing. Versus an experience with it. Now, there's a requirement before I make my third step decision. I love going back and, re- and looking at this third step every time through the work. I have always, every single time, been awakened to more things about myself, my self-will, how I come in life, and God, by going back in and looking at this again. But this requirement is, am I convinced my life run on self-will can already be a success? I look at that from a position of being free from alcohol 21 years. Am I convinced with this length of time that my life run in self-will can already be a success? And now the book's going to take about a page and a half to describe what this looks like. So I, I always go through this process with my current experience with my life. And it talks about when I run my life on my will, I'm always in collision with something and somebody, even though my motives are good. I love to live by self-propulsion. 
I'm like an actor. I want to run the whole show. I want to arrange lights, ballet, all of you, AA, my home group, all my employees, my girlfriend, in my own way. And if you all would just stay put, if you all would just do what I wished, you know, then the show would be great. And I read this and I, I say to myself, this stuff is going on again. How did this happen? How did this happen? See? The crazy thing in that, in that part of the third step is, I think if you do what I want, not only will I be happy, but you'll be happier too. <laughs> I'm like an actor who wants to be a director who ends up being a producer. That works a lot better in Los Angeles, but <laughs> I think you've got to feel for what we produce. And, and it says, well, what usually happens? And all what this is attempting to do is introduce me to something which is contained in my decision in the bottom of 62. It's trying to show me how I like to play God. The bulk of the amends that I have made since I got sober came from my attempts to play God. It's a critical for me that I see that and experience that. So what happens? The show didn't come off very well. I begin to think you don't treat me life. Life doesn't, so I'm going to exert myself more. I become on the next occasion then demanding your graces. Talks about ultimately what happens is I become angry, indignant, and self-pity. What's my basic trouble? I'm a self-seeker even trying to be kind. I'm a victim of the delusion. I'll be satisfied and happy if I can manage well. And I take all of my time attempting to manage well, which is also then where all my fear comes from. Talks about it's evident to all the rest of the people in life, these are the things I want. It gets in and describes the fact that I am self-centered. Page 62. This is the first time the book is going to finally tell me what's really wrong with me. Selfishness and self-centeredness is at the root of all my troubles. And when you are selfish and self-centered, you're going to go through life being driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. I'll give you a consideration. Look up the word driven and look up the word choice and ask yourself this question, particularly if you've been sober for a while. Do you have parts of your life in which you are being driven versus making choices? Go back in just the last year and quote, look at... <laughs> what One of the great tricks that my mind did with me is it got me to believe that sober I was making choices till I looked at some of them. They were insane. They were absolutely insane choices. Meet her on Friday and marry her on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, I could go on and on and on and, and through repetitive times through the steps, I came to understand I wasn't making choices that I was being driven and there was no choice. Because when I'm in the self-will, there's not choice. There's only the manifestation of how I think my self-will is going to be manifested. Choice comes from a state of neutrality. See? With an unselfish motive. And it talks about then, and it's a setup for inventory, when you go through life being driven, it's like the reverse of a four-column inventory. Imagine the fourth column first. Fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. What does it do? 
It causes you to take a course of action. You step on the toes of your fellows, column one. They retaliate, column two. You're hurt, column three, but it all started with four. It's a circular deal. What you put out will come back to you. When we get to the resentment inventory, you're going to write a four column. You're going to start with column one, two, three, and come to four. But four sets the ball rolling because you're being driven. And it says invariably, you made decisions based on self, which placed you in a position to be hurt. <coughs> so our troubles are of our own making. Now, the book starting at page 62 also does something very different. It begins to take a light and shine it on ourselves, and it's no longer about them. Some friends of mine in Nashville had these laminated things printed up. It's not about them. <laughs> and they're going all over meetings, and if someone starts whining about them, they give them one of the laminated cards. It's not about them. It's not about them. It's about you. Your perception, how you experience it. My troubles arise out of myself, and I'm an extreme example of self-overrun right, though I do not think so. Next sentence to me is one of the most important lines in the big book. Seldom talk. Above everything, I must be rid of the selfishness here will kill me. You must see the connection between your selfishness and dying and alcoholic death. See, if I don't get rid of my selfishness, what's going to happen is the show's not going to turn out the way I want. I'm going to create a spiritual malady within myself. I'm going to become diseased, and my mind at a certain time knows what will treat that, which is a drink or a line of cocaine, and I'm going to put that in my body. And a guy like me is facing alcoholic death. That's the connection. The only way I get rid of the selfishness is do the work in the rest of the steps. So the bottom of 62 is my third step decision. This is the how and the why, but i got to quit playing God. Hopefully I'm going to wake some of you up this weekend to how you still play God in people's lives and the harm that that creates instead of giving people the dignity to just be themselves. I don't ever attempt to force this work on anybody or a spiritual way of life anymore. You do this work enough times and you start to see what you'll do out of your virtue. I want to help them. I only work with people who give me spiritual consent. Why? Because I quit playing God in other people's lives, that's why. I'm not here to rescue alcoholics and fix people. You want to you stay caught up in pain and suffering and misery? Have a great day. <laughs> I'm here to dance and have joy and all those <coughs> other incredible things. And I'm going to leave you the dignity to stay in your suffering if you want. I mean, the theme of this weekend is how free do you want to be? Unbelievable freedom available to you. And then we get to make this incredible third step decision then. Based on the fact that I finally know why. I'm going to quit playing God. Why? Because me playing God doesn't work. And I'm clear finally why I'm going to make this decision. Because I'm going to die an alcoholic death if I don't. And this decision means I'm going to say a prayer which is an affirmation of the decision. And then I'm going to be willing to do the rest of the steps. We talked about myths last night. How many people at some time or right now believe the third step is turning your will and your life over to the care of God. A lot of people believe that. Go home, take the third step, come back the next day, your entire will and life's turned over to the care of God. It's not. It's just a decision. How do you turn your will and your life over to the care of God? By taking actions you can't take contrary to your will and against the way you've lived your life in 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. So let's say that the first step is like an onion. And you think... Wow, haven't I done well in admitting I can't control booze once I start to drink? They say, no. What about when you're not drinking? Okay, I can't keep myself stopped once I've stopped. How about that? 
No. What about the ability to manage your life, your emotional nature, misery, depression, making a, li a living that you feel passionate about, being of real help to other people, overcoming uselessness and fear? Then you come to that and you go, wow, haven't I seen enough? And then they go, can you really advance your spiritual growth on your own power? Then they take you into the deep forms of self-will. Then you're in an inventory. Then they say you can't wish away anger any more than alcohol. You can't, get, you can't make fear go away. You don't have what it takes to bring any power to a relationship. The sex inventory is not about sex. It's about relationship with ourselves, God, and other people. Then you say, okay, I've done well in admitting all this stuff, but now I'm going to work on my defects now that I've admitted them. Then they say, wow, if you could work six and seven, have at it. Right? If I could work six and seven, I certainly wouldn't be working eight and nine. Then you say, well, I finally surrendered. I can't even, make my, I can't even fix my own defects. Now I'm going to go out and repair the damage. Do you have the power to do that? Well, now as I do that, I'm going to practice 10 and 11, and I'm going to maintain one of the biggest first-step reservations are people in 10 and 11 thinking they're the ones that bring about the daily reprieve by maintaining their spiritual condition. That's a gift, too. They don't call presents presents because it's not a gift. They call presents presents because it's a present. It's a gift. How about this one? Work the steps to the best of your ability. And a friend says, didn't you tell me a couple weeks ago the best of your ability is to be glued to a bar stool, unable to get up, messing up everybody in your life? I'm going to work the steps to the best of my ability? Don't have the power to do that. It just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Go back to everyone you ever hurt. You got the power to do that? A guy said to Mark one time in Texas, because in Texas they're tough, and they love, God will do for me what I can't do for myself, but I pretty well better do what I can do for myself, Right? And this guy says to Mark, the idea that you can finish every amends you're aware of is like thinking you could take a feather pillow to the top of the Empire State Building, throw them feathers out and go find every one of them. And right off the top of his head with no thought, Mark said, what if you had a personal relationship with the creator of each of those feathers? Could he take you to them? Because we know people after people after people after people who've been given the power and the grace and the guidance and the direction to make every amends they're consciously aware of. I can't do that. I can't keep myself sober. I can't reduce my self-centeredness. I can't wish fear away. I can't manage anger. So it just goes deeper. So I would like to say this to you. If you've seen the manifestations of page 52, and it's an internal condition, the spiritual malady does not mean your spirit's sick. The spiritual malady means that it's a real malady to be shut off from your spirit. The spirit is 100% pure. It's within each and every one of us. It's just covered over. But it's like a diamond in the rough. It's like a diamond in the mud. God's going to clear away the mud to get in touch with that which has always been there, given to you at, at birth. So I'm going to propose this. If you've seen the current unmanageability, ask yourself, is there any separation between that and alcohol? And what is that separation? Why aren't I drunk? Is there any separation between your unmanageability, alcohol, and your agnosticism? A woman said to me the other day, and it was so clear, my agnosticism is my alcoholism. They're not two separate isms. They're not two separate issues. Your sponsor said to me, my agnosticism is my alcoholism. 
And my agnosticism, as I currently experience it today, is a reflection of the unmanageability, the stuff that I'm feeling tension with. If you didn't have agnosticism, you wouldn't have unmanageability. Life's going to go on. Page 52 is not going to go away. There's going to be ups and downs with relationships, money, useless, usefulness, working with others, health. Believe it or not, folks, life's going to go on. The key is to be at peace with the way it is. But I'm experiencing this tension, and it brings me back to the work, and I see how it's manifesting. I don't like smoking. I don't like weight, health. I got this stuff. It's internal. It's my view. It's my perception. I'm not at peace. I'm experiencing tension. It's a drink. Why aren't I drunk? And I realize the grace of God. I believe in the realization of the grace of God is a first-step experience way beyond being scared by what it was like. Because what it was like is not what it's like now. And you're not drunk. The grace of God, there's a, there's a first-step experience in that realization like I never had. So I believe if you've seen the current unmanageability, it will be your eight-step list. It will be your amends. We're just going to expand on the manifestations of 52. And if there's no separation between someone I owe amends to and my willingness and my defects and my admission and my inventory and my self-will and the decision I've made about step three and my choice about God is everything or nothing and a reflection of my current agnosticism, it will be a reflection of the unmanageability, which is alcohol. That's how they're connected. I had times the further away I got from one, the further away I got from one. My mind used to tell me step one's only true when you're in it. But I've also had these times where in the ninth step, I have a deeper consciousness of my first step as it connects to step two, as it connects to step three, as I've seen in my inventory, as I admitted to you, as I saw my defects that I can't fix, I make my list, and it is the current unmanageability. They're all connected. The steps aren't separate. The big book talks about an arch through which we're going to pass to freedom. We should go back and cover that just for a moment because at the end of the fifth step, they're going to ask you some questions. If you haven't been thorough, it would be really confusing. They're going to ask you about stones. Stones. They're going to ask you about cement. They're going to ask you about how you made that cement. So let's start with the foundation. The foundation is my first step. The cement described on page 17 is equal parts of common problem and common solution. Watch people who are always involved in the problem. Watch meetings that only focus on the problem. Watch meetings that only focus on the solution. It's a dangerous job not to see both. We only want to hear about the solution here. You'll turn out some zealots. You'll turn out people that are really rigid with the word but they always seem to forget that with every common solution, there's a common problem. That page says there should be equal parts, sharing in a common problem and sharing in a common solution, which joins us. It doesn't join most of us in Alcoholics Anonymous anymore, and that's just the way it is. But those of us in this room, I think we're interested in a common solution because we share in a common problem, whether it's drug addiction or alcoholism or both. So the cement is described on page 17. At the first proposition and the second step, do you now believe or are you even willing to believe, they call that the cornerstone. I've never laid brick, but I, I was told that's the first stone put on the foundation. They usually put a date on it, right? 
Boom, there's my willingness to believe that there is a power greater than myself. You put some more stones in place between that and the keystone, which is at the top of the arch that holds the whole, that balances the whole thing, and that's my third step decision. I see the third step in four parts. Am I convinced of the ABCs? And isn't it neat that once again, all the work I've done in the description of the alcoholic, doctor's opinion, Bill's story, there is a solution, more about alcoholism, the chapter to the agnostic, in relationship to my personal adventures, drunk or sober, have made clear three pertinent ideas, that drunk or sober, I'm alcoholic, and I can't manage my own life. Remember, the unmanageability is an internal condition, not out here. It's really hard to work with guys sometimes who have it all going on out here, but they see that they're empty and separate and shut off inside. The spiritual, the unmanageability is an internal condition. It's reflected out here, but not always. That no human power can relieve my alcoholism. So much for thinking your sponsor is going to be like God. You know what we do? You know one of the big problems I've had in Alcoholics Anonymous? I've made humans into God and God into a human. We were talking about trust the other day, and I said to this guy, which was said to me, trust human, you know, I was let down by my sponsor. He lied. Oh, my God. You know, I've gone to people in Alcoholics Anonymous that are clear on their work and made amends, and I'll ask them what I can do to make it right, and they'll say stuff like, don't ever lie again. Oh, okay. I'm going to go home and just not drink no matter what, and I'll never lie again, and I'll get back to you, right? Trust humans to be human. Trust God to be God. But quit making God into a human and humans into God. No human power can relieve my alcoholism. And do I believe that God not only can, but He will. Most of you in this room, unless you're brand new, I would say you'll never have a problem with the question, can He? But every time through the work, once I've seen my current stuff, I have some reservations sometimes about, will he? Take me past here. So the first part is, are you convinced of those ABCs? The second part is a requirement. Am I convinced that my life run on self-will has not, is not successful? And if you're not convinced, they gave you about a page and a half that helps you be convinced of where you're learning your life on self-will. Let me throw this out there. Why would any alcoholic ever decide to turn their will and their life over to something other than themselves if they were still doing a good job running their life on their will. To make a decision to give your will and your life to the care of God, you have to be convinced that your life run on your will is not successful. And that's the first requirement of the third step. Am I convinced? Then the decision. The third step decision is not the prayer. The prayer is an affirmation that you've already made the decision. And you know what? Great promises come to pass just from making the decision. They're in the next paragraph after the decision. What's the decision? I'm going to decide that from hereafter, this is what I would like God to be. I would like God to be God, and I would like me to be me. Rather than an actor who thinks he's a director, I would like to be an actor who follows the director. Rather than an agent that thinks he's the principal, my God, I don't know how many years I had to go to therapy till a therapist finally said to me, you're not the creator. You're not the healer. You're here because you're the creature and you need to be healed. You're not going to heal yourself. Made all the difference in the world in therapy for me 
when I realized it was not an answer. It was another four-step tool to discover truth that I then need to take to God. I'm not the healer, and I always wondered why when I would leave a therapist's office and they'd say, wow, you've done some great work. Now you have to cope with it, work on it, deal with it, and fix it. And I would walk out of their office feeling like I was just carrying a thousand pounds. I finally met a man who lived with Thomas Merton, who's also a psychotherapist now, Dr. Jim Finley. And the first time I sat with him, he said, we always bring this truth to God. And I saw, I saw therapy as it is. It's a four-step tool to continue to discover truth that you then need to take to six and seven. It's not an answer. I thought it was a seven-step thing. It was a four-step thing. And a lady gave me that one night in Denver. So where am I with this decision? What does it mean to me now for God to be the director and me to be the actor? For God to be the principal and me to be the agent? For God to be the father, for me to do the be a child? Those things have changed. I make that decision, and amazing things start to happen. They're in the third step promises, before the prayer. But they know that we were alcoholics, and we all, we all have some reservations. Isn't it interesting that after the prayer, after the third step prayer, they say, we thought well before taking this step, making sure that we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to God. We consider that before we do the prayer. Are you at last ready to abandon yourself utterly? I went to a thing in India and this guy came over to my house and he said, you've got to come to this talk. It's going to be one of the greatest talks you've ever heard on God. I said, well, I've heard some pretty good ones with, from people whose lives are on the line. You know, seeking God with, life, with your life on the line is a little different than seeking God based on virtue. Isn't it a great thing that we have that motivation of life and death? And we just don't have to just raise ourselves up every day because we're good people and do it out of virtue. We do it out of desperation. There's no virtue in seeking God for an alcoholic. It's not always a pleasant thing. So this guy comes to my house. He says, you've got to come to this talk on God. I'm going, I'm going to go. I'm going to go anywhere. Mosque, temple, synagogue, I don't care. God's God is either there or he isn't. You're either free or you're not. A lot of people get stuck in religion, never find the spirit. So I go. Here's this guru-looking guy, Indian-looking guy. We sit for a few minutes. And he opens his mouth and he says, there is no God. And I looked at my friend and I thought, I'm here to hear a talk about God. And this guy said, there is no God, but I am not an atheist. Now, how can someone say there is no God, but I'm not an atheist? And my mind starts. I'm 17 years sober and I thought I was not much interested in conception anymore. I'm interested in experiencing the consciousness of the presence of God, not ideas about him. But my mind started and there's some old stuff. And he starts into this thing about a car. Pull the tires off. Is it still a car? Pull the engine out. When is it no longer a car? And then I really didn't know where he was going. <laughs> then he starts into a body. And he says, there's a basic, some kind of philosophical belief system that the sum is the, the whole is the sum of the parts. He said, that's not true. Take a little baby, innocent, purely innocent, filled with bliss, love, God. Make just one little cut or stop the air. Form didn't change. The sum of the parts didn't change. Where'd the life go? Then I really didn't know where he was going. Then he did it with the human body. Pull the arms off. Is it still human? When is it no longer human? Then I, my mind is just going like this, right? And he said, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And I thought, what in the world are we going to pray to if there is no God? He said, let's pray to relieve God of the bondage. And I heard those terms that we say a little different. I said, I thought to myself, 
pray to relieve God of the bondage. And then I, he repeated himself, let's pray to relieve God of the bondage of the personalities that we've imposed on him. You've got to quit calling a verb a noun. It's not a person, a place, a thing, even though it's all those things. There is no God, but there is nothing but godliness. The creative intelligence of the universe underlying the totality of things that's alive within each of us. Quit calling a, noun, a verb a noun. There is no God. Once you say God, you've limited it to a box of definition and conception. But there is nothing but godliness. Why don't we take, why don't we take a 25-minute break, come back at 11 o'clock, and we'll start with the third step prayer. Anybody that can take a couple minutes, read from the ABCs to the prayer. Use the microphones. Why don't we start with a moment of silence? Maybe a few moments before we, before we start that. Uh, how about a few moments of silence? Each in your own way. Moments of silence. Mark will take us through a guided meditation on the proposals that we've considered so far up to the prayer and then I would like to read the original prayer that Dr. Bob wrote with Clarence Snyder for the third step. In fellowship and love, we ask that you open our hearts and minds. We have taken a look at the first step the concept that when we take a drink we lose control we've looked into our own experience to find out our own truth does this happen to me is this me does my experience abundantly confirm that once I take a drink that I begin to lose control do I have this allergy do I experience this phenomenon called craving we took a look at the idea that the most insane act that we could ever commit we commit when we have no alcohol or drugs in our body and that the idea that the main problem centers in our mind rather than in our body that at certain times we'll have no effective mental defense against that first drink or against that first drug we were shown some examples and asked to look at our own experience do we think the reason would keep us away from the drink we were introduced to the idea that what happens to us is we experience what is called a strange mental blank spot. Choice cannot originate in a strange mental blank spot if I had that experience. And if so, and if that is me, then I am an alcoholic, and I must seek a relationship with a higher power to provide that defense and to restore me to sanity. We looked at the idea of the unmanageability of our life and the spiritual malady. Do I, when I'm living my life on self-will, experience life from a standpoint of being restless, irritable, and discontent, having trouble in personal relationships, not being able to control my emotional nature, prey to misery and depression, full of fear, never satisfied with my life regardless of how it looks, how good it looks, or how bad it looks, feeling useless at times, feeling full of fear? Is that me? Is that my experience? And we take this hopelessness and this first step experience into the second step, which I become willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself that can restore me to sanity. And I'm given the idea that I need to come up with a concept of that power which can be personal to me. 
And then I come faced with a self-imposed crisis that I can no longer postpone or evade. That God is going to be everything or nothing in my life and what is my choice to be. And the promise of the second step is that if I'm willing to seek God through a course of action that I can experience this God deep down within myself. We come up to the third step and then my convention. And then we took a look at the idea of what it looks like when I'm trying to play God in my own life and in people's lives, and how ultimately that leads to confusion and chaos, and introduced the idea that selfish self-centeredness is the root of all my troubles, and I go through life being driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. The end result is I step on the toes of my fellows and they retaliate, and I wind up feeling hurt. I'm given the great promise that all my troubles are my own making but that above everything I have to get rid of this selfishness. But that I cannot do in my own power, and I see the truth of that. But I had to have God's help, and the way I'm going to get God's help is I'm going to quit playing God. And the book talks about a relationship that I get to have with my Creator, in which God's going to direct my life, and I'm going to be the actor, God's going to be the principal, and I'm going to be the agent. God's going to be the father, and I'm going to be the child. God's going to be the employer, and I'm going to be the employee. And that leads me up to this third step, prayer, which is going to be an affirmation of the decision. This is the original third step prayer as used by Dr. Bob with Clarence Snyder. Dear God, I'm sorry about the mess I've made of my life. I want to turn away from all the wrong things I've ever done and all the wrong things I've ever been. Please forgive me for it all. I know you have the power to change my life and can turn me into a winner. Thank you, God, for getting my attention long enough to interest me in trying it your way. God, please take over the management of my life and everything about me. I'm making this conscious decision to turn my will and my life over to your care and, and I'm asking you to please take over all parts of my life. Please, God, move into my heart. However you do it is your business but make yourself real inside me and fill my awful emptiness. Fill me with your love and Holy Spirit and make me know your will for me. And now, God, help yourself to me and keep on doing it. I'm not sure I want you to, but do it anyhow. I rejoice that I am now part of your people, that my uncertainty is gone forever, and that you have control of my will and my life. Thank you. Praise your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to talk about the fourth step. If you want to open your big book to page 63, we're going to take a look at some of the instructions. Bottom of 63 says that we're going to launch out on a course of vigorous action, first step, which is a personal house cleaning. Page 64 says, which many of us have never attempted. 
though our third step decision, the one we just make, is vital and crucial, that decision will have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us from that power we so desperately need. Whenever I write inventory, I always keep in mind the intent of inventory, and this is the intent of inventory. To face and to be rid of that which has me blocked from the power that I need. My liquor or drugs is but a symptom. If you go to a doctor and the doctor asks you a series of questions, you will present symptoms to the doctor, but the doctor does not treat symptoms. The doctor treats the problem. So on page 64 of the big book, I'm given a very paradoxical statement that alcohol is but a symptom, it's not my problem. The books talked about the problem. The problem is self-will run riot, selfishness, self-centeredness. That is the problem. Alcohol taking a drink of will ultimately be the symptom of that problem. So I got to get down to the causes and the conditions of this problem. So I'm going to talk about a personal inventory. This is step four. Talks about I'm going to do exactly the same thing with my life. I'm going to take stock honestly. I'm going to search out the flaws in my makeup which caused my failure. Remember that statement. It's not about them. Being convinced that self, self-will, which will manifest in various ways is what had defeated me, I'm going to see how self-will will manifest. Well, resentment is the number one offender. Do I believe that? Resentments always stem from some unmet need based on my perception of some event and is always tied into my self-will. Every resentment I've ever written that sums up exactly why I wrote that resentment. Is some need predicated on self-will and selfishness was not met, which is what led to the resentment. That's the litmus test. It goes on to say that resentments destroy more alcoholics than anything else. I mentioned I've worked with a lot of people who have relapse history. And ultimately, every single time, we can, we can trace back the relapse to a resentment. And this book says that if I'm resentful, that I'm blocked from the sunlight of the spirit or I'm blocked from the power that provides a mental defense, which is why I don't have the luxury of resentments. Uh, I wrote a, an evening review last night, and uh, I wrote a four-column piece of inventory last night. And the reason I did that is I can't afford the luxury of resentments. Because if I have even one resentment, God lies within you. If I'm blocked from you, I'm blocked from God. What if you got a hundred resentments? What if you got 50? What if you got 30? I don't have the luxury of permitting myself to have resentments because it is the number one offender. It talks about from resentment stems all forms of spiritual disease. For I've been not only mentally and physically ill, I've been spiritually sick. Threefold illness. When the spirituality is overcome, I will straighten out mentally and physically. And the writing of the inventories is going to be a manifestation of the spirituality. So now I start to get very specific instructions. I'm going to put these resentments on paper. Now the book starts to give me instructions on writing a resentment inventory one sentence at a time. Starts out listing the first column. I'm going to make a list of people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry, period. So then I do that. I follow that assignment. I take people. I start at the present. God show me who I'm resentful at. And I let the names roll out onto the paper. I take institutions. And I always obviously like to stay very current and work back. So I begin to make a list of institutions. What are institutions? Police departments, 
banks, credit bureaus, U.S. government, army, navy, marriage, church, religion, those are institutions. Third column is principles. Principles would be things like men don't cry. All these insane belief systems that get fostered on us in terms of principles. A woman's place is in the home. All those, all those neat kinds of things. Spiritual men don't ever make mistakes. You know, those are all become principles. So I begin to make my list, and that's the first column. When I get done with that list, I'm going to do the second column, which is I'm going to ask myself why we were angry. Past tense. Why we were angry. So I take a name, and then I try and be very specific, but in a bulleted fashion, not this long, flowery stuff. I'm not trying to justify anything. I'm just trying to write my second column. Why was I angry? And I begin to write that out. I have written inventory two different ways. One is I will just write a column at a time. So I'll finish my first column. Then I, I like to take a, a pad, and I will have one sheet for every resentment. In my second column, I've done one of two things. Very seldom do I only have one reason why I'm resentful. More often than not, I have several depending on what needs did not get met. And at times, what I have didn't done, if I put in a name in column one and I have six reasons why I was resentful in column two, I will write a third and fourth column on all six. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is you'll group them. You may have six reasons in the second column why you're angry at somebody. You can just group them if you want to. Then you get done with the second column and now it's going to discuss the third column. And it talks about, in most cases, it was found that my self-esteem, my pocketbook, my ambitions, my personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So that just discussed five areas of my life that were hurt or threatened behind these resentments. Self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relationships, including sex. It says, so I'm mad, I'm burned up. And on my grudge list, then, I said opposite each name, my injuries. Injuries is your third column. And they repeat, was it my self-esteem? And then they added security and ambition. My personal sex relations interfered with. So, and then if you look in the, in the big book toward the bottom of the third column, it uses the word pride. So in the third column, I use seven areas of self that are hurt, threatened, or interfered with. I use self-esteem. That's who I think I am. I use pride. That's how others see me. I use ambition. That's what I want. I use security, that's what I need to be okay. Personal relations to me are same-sex relations. Sex relations are opposite sex and money. So when I go to write a resentment inventory and get to my third column, I'm going to look at those seven areas of self and ask myself, were these areas hurt, threatened, or interfered with behind what I wrote in the second column? I have found over the years that it's very important what you write in the second column because your third and fourth are going to flow from that. So I ask God, let me be truthful about what's going on in that second column and what I'm going to write. And then I get some more instructions about this. It talks about going back through my life. Nothing counted but being thorough and honest. And then it goes on to say that when you're finished with these first three columns, we need to consider this carefully. And it goes on, now it's going to, it's going to give us some great instructions prior to getting into what I call the fourth column. And I want to go over this 
then I want to have Jer Joe share some experience with resentment inventory. It says it's apparent that it, the world and its people, the first column, are often quite wrong, column two. To conclude others was wrong, column two, was as far as you and I ever got. And that's how we lived our lives. I'm mad at you and this is why, and that's it. And I lived in that cynicism and bitterness and resentment most of my life till I came to AA and I was shown a way to get free of that. Well, the usual outcome is people continued to wrong me, second column, and I stayed mad or sore, third column. Sometimes it's remorse and then I'm sore at myself. But the more I fight and try and have my own way, the worse things got. Then the book gives you a very interesting paragraph in discussing resentments. It says it's plain that any life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. And I like to ask people, why are resentments futile? My experience is the reason resentments are futile is I don't have any control whatsoever over your behavior. And it's extremely futile of me to think that I ever will. And then that consequently leads to unhappiness. To the precise extent that I permit these resentments, will I squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. But now I'm going to get this very powerful warning. But with me, whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. It's fatal. For when I harbor these feelings, I shut myself off from the sunlight of the spirit. It took me a while, and I had to write a lot of inventory to understand that. If I resent somebody, God dwells within them. If I'm blocked from them, I'm blocked from God. It took me a long time to understand that line in the book. That's why the book says, Mark, we <laughs> that's the dubious luxury of other men. I, I hear a lot of things around resentments. I hear people that talk about writing a four-column inventory in their mind. Can't reconcile that with the book. So it, and it describes what's going to happen. The insanity of alcohol return, and I drink again with me to drink is to die. If I'm to live, I must be free of anger. Now, that does not mean I do not get angry. It says I must be free of anger. There's a difference between anger and resentment. Resent means to revisit. Very seldom will I go through a day while I won't have the human experience of anger. That does not mean that it becomes a resentment. When I do an evening review, if I revisit that wrong, that second column, if I continue to revisit, now I'm into a resentment and I'm long past anger, and I'm going to continue to revisit. Grouch and the brainstorm are not for me. Now it says I turn back to this list, for the list holds the key to the future. I've often thought over the years, very seldom is that a topic in our meetings. I, I believe it's an incredible topic to be discussed. This list holds the key to my future. Why aren't we talking about this? I think this is critical. This list holds the key to my... You don't think they meant the key to our future, do you? My experience is absolutely they meet the key to my future because when I got moved from writing my third to my fourth column, I became a free man. And it was no longer about you. This is the key to my future changed my entire perception of myself and you and the world in which I live and move and have my being. It does mean the key to your future. Now it says you're going to start to look at this from a whole different angle. These, you've written these three, three columns of inventory. You're going to look at it and you're going to, going to be, see the world and its people, column one, really dominate you, column two. And in that state, the wrongdoing of others, column three, fancy to real, has the power to kill me has the power to kill me. How do I escape? I saw these resentments must be mastered, but how? 
I can't wish them away anymore in alcohol. This was my course. Now, this next few paragraphs, I call the bridge to the fourth column, and it is a complete shift in perception of how you're going to look at this resentment. This is my course. I realize that the people, what I wrote in column one, who wronged me.